Well, how y'all doing today? Good. Oh, man, hold up. How y'all doing today? No, there we go. That's a little better. Well, hey, we're glad that you're with us this morning, either here in the room, those of you online. We have been in a series called Make It Awesome. And in this series, we're talking about how we can put some spiritual habits in place in our lives so that we can draw near to God. That The whole point of this is that God is awesome. And if we desire to have an awesome life, which we should an awesome life that reflects the awesomeness of God, then the way to have that awesome life is to connect with God regularly and put in place some habits that help us connect with him. And those things would then allow his awesomeness to saturate our lives and draw us closer to him. Now, last week, I encourage you to put in a couple new habits, maybe new for some of you, uh, habits of fasting and prayer. And I I encourage you to get some time alone with God, to close the door away from everybody else apart from all the other things in this world and just get some alone time with God. And then to call a timeout on all the other things in this world, all the other appetites that compete with God. But this week, I'm going to flip it a little bit and take a look at the counterpart to fasting. And that's feasting. Now, some of you just got a whole lot more interested in the message today. When the pastor starts talking about feasting, you're like, hey, that's, that's something I can listen to. And some of you, you might not realize this, but feasting is just as spiritual. It's every bit as spiritually significant as fasting or prayer. All throughout the Bible, we see God command his people to celebrate with a feast. Different feasts at different times, all of them celebrating God, celebrating in various ways the relationship we have with God. And so we're commanded to feast again and again and again and again at different times, different ways, different reasons. But ultimately, all of it is to celebrate the relationship that we can have with God and one another through him. Now, that's pretty good news. I like that one. In fact, every week when we celebrate communion here, that's a little foretaste of the feast that's to come. It's a reminder of the feasts that they had in the Old Testament, the Passover, but it's also a reminder that one day for those who put their hope and their trust in Jesus, we will join with Jesus and with God the Father at the great banquet table in heaven, sharing a feast as God's special guests. Friends, that's really cool. That's really awesome. But, but, we don't always get to start there. One of the fun things as we look, if we see the fast throughout the scripture, is we look back and we look at this guy named Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a, a prophet of the Old Testament, and Nehemiah was just dismayed at the situation in his capital city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in disarray, so the capital was a mess. That seems somewhat timely for our culture today. And Nehemiah was led to honor God by going to that city and rebuilding the city walls. The city walls had crumbled and fallen. And he said, man, we got to rebuild those walls. We got to bring God's honor back to that city. So he asked for permission to go. He went and then they built the city walls. And when he and his people had completed that project, listen to what Nehemiah said. He said, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks. Sounds pretty good. And share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We are to have joy in the Lord. We're to have joy and celebrate. That's where our strength comes from. Not just to be dejected and sad, but to be joy-filled 
allowing God's strength to move through us, and that should bring us joy. Now, that's a command I can obey, to be joyful and celebrate with good food and good people and lots of it. I like that. In fact, if that were the only command of God, I think I'd be doing really good at obeying what the Bible says. But before we can call the party planning committee, we got to first do what Nehemiah did first. Before Nehemiah went back to that city, before he packed his bags for Jerusalem, before he started stacking the stones in that wall, before he fired up the grill and kicked up the band, before he hung the streamers for the party, Nehemiah fasted and prayed. And I want us to take a look at what he said in part of that prayer, especially what he did while he was praying. When I heard about this, this situation in the capital, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess Notice how he turns this prayer. Notice what he does. I confess that we have sinned against you, Lord. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant, Moses. He confessed. Before Nehemiah would celebrate, he knew he needed to confess. Because confession is the prerequisite for celebration. Is it something that comes before? When we want something in life, most good things have some kind of prerequisite to them. Something that we have to master first. Something that we have to experience first. Something that we have to do first before we get to experience the greater and next level of it. You, you got to master one level in the video game before you go on to the next, right? For the young ones in the room. A couple of weeks ago, I went skiing with some of our high school students here at the church. And a lot of these students had not been skiing before. It was their first time. So you know what that means. They started on the bunny slope and they started on the beginner slope. Except for one unlucky individual, one high school kid who followed me and let me be the teacher. And I accidentally started her on the intermediate slope. And so we quickly made our way to the beginner slope. Maybe a little quicker than she wanted because... And you just push somebody down a hill, they're going to go. And if they haven't learned how to stop yet, they're going to go quickly. And so we got to the beginner slope, and eventually it went all right. She learned how to ski. Others learned that day. But you know how it goes. When you start skiing, you don't start on the black diamond. You don't start on the toughest courses. You begin by starting on the easy slopes. You got to learn how to start. You got to learn how to stand. You got to learn how to steer. You got to learn how to stop. Because if you don't, and you just start on the black diamond on the most difficult course, when you get to the bottom of the hill, you won't be standing, you won't be celebrating, you'll just be dead. <laughs> and so we got to start at the beginning. And that's kind of how it is in the spiritual life too. Some things precede other things. Confession precedes celebration. And contrary to how some people view confession, so some people look at confession as this terrible thing, oh, I'm going to bear my soul and then people are going to judge me and they're going to shame me and I'm going to be embarrassed and i got to tell all my deepest, darkest secrets and all this, uh, just, But that's not what confession is. Contrary to how some people see it, it's not a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a beautiful thing. It's a gift to us. See, confession is the invitation to experience God's liberating forgiveness in our lives. Confession 
is an invitation to experience more of God, to remove the barriers that would keep us from experiencing more of God, to remove the barriers that keep us from being close to God. So confession is is necessary. Now you might be thinking, well, if I'm a Christian and if God's already forgiven me, do I really need to confess to him? Yes. Yeah, you do. Now, not because God needs to hear it, not because you need to walk through some formulaic religious principle and get to God. That's not what it's about. You need to confess because you need it. You need it. Because confession initiates a process of being healed, of being liberated from our sin, from our shame, from our guilt. Confession moves us closer to God. It keeps us sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. It keeps us from hardening our hearts to the things of God. And if we confess the little bits along the way, then they don't add up to a big heap. It keeps us sensitive to God. It keeps us in closer relationship with God. It's a process of self-examination. Where we examine our words and our thoughts and our deeds. And we acknowledge that with some of those words, some of those thoughts, some of those deeds... We have dishonored God, and we have harmed ourselves with our sin. And so we look in the mirror, and we begin there. We begin by looking at ourselves. It's really just doing what Alcoholics Anonymous and other recovery programs for addicts have known all along. It's the fourth step of AA, having a ruthless and fearless moral inventory and inviting other people to help us in our transformation process. Now, we're wise about how we invite others in. We, we don't just want people who are going to shame us and guilt us. You know, if we confess to the wrong person and they make us feel bad, that's not healthy confession. That doesn't move us near to God. That doesn't move us to confess again. But nor does it help us to just clear our conscience, get it off our chest, tell somebody like, oh, yeah, that's okay. Well, let's just go on with it. No, we want to confess to somebody who won't shame us, but also who won't just enable us. Somebody who will lovingly hold us accountable to move forward in our journey of faith, drawing near and near to God. And so we confess. But that also means we got to be specific. You, you know, if I tell God, hey, God, sorry that I didn't act the way I should have in that meeting today. That's really not that helpful for me. What, what am I asking God to forgive? Because there's a lot of things to go on with that. But the more specific I am, the more I address the things that I need God to heal in my heart. And the more I own it, the more likely I am to move beyond it. And the less likely I am to sin in the same way again. So if I say, hey, God, in that meeting today, I was jealous of that other person. And my pride was hurt, and so my ego flared. And I said things I shouldn't have said. I made that other person look bad. I try and make myself look better, and I know that doesn't work because I just made both of us look bad, or maybe I only made myself look bad. And then I got angry about that. So, God, I had anger and jealousy and pride and God, I don't want that stuff. And if I confess that way, specifically calling it out to God, say, God, would you heal that in me? Would you change that about me? Because, God, I want to be a person of love and generosity, a person who celebrates other people, a person who is so confident in who I am in you, I don't need to worry about what's going on in that meeting and how somebody views me there. That is much more helpful. So we got to get specific about that. But that means that we have to take appropriate responsibility for what we did. I mean, that's what confession is. It means we take appropriate responsibility for what we've done, for the sin in our lives. But if we're honest about this, we're not very good at this. So, so before we move on, let me just make this disclaimer. A fair warning. I'm probably going to offend you today. Now, not so much me. 
I'm just the messenger. So keep that in mind. I'm just a messenger. But God's word and the truth from God's word applying to our lives and our culture today might offend you a little bit today. And if that happens, that's probably a good thing. That means the Holy Spirit's wanting to do some work and move you along in your transformation journey. So just stick with me through that process because when we get to the end of the message, I think we can celebrate again. But if we're going to call out the things that we need to call out, if we're going to own up to our part to appropriately own our responsibility, then that means we got to admit that our behavior is not just the result of bad parenting or of an unjust system of poor genes or a jealous sibling of difficult circumstances. We don't just get to blame somebody else, point the finger out there and say, well, my reason for doing that is because of them, because of that. I hit my sister because she said something mean to me. We, we don't get to say that. We, no, don't hit your sister. She shouldn't have said something mean, but you should not have reacted the same way. So we got to call it out ourselves. And, and to be fair, human behavior is complex. And there are always those, those circumstances that factor into it, those contributing factors And so all those things that I listened a moment ago, they might be factors in why we do what we do, but that doesn't give us an excuse to do what we do. Confession means that in the mix of all those contributing factors, at some point I've got to say to God and myself, hey, in that mix of everything going on, I still made a choice. And my choice was sin. And and I don't necessarily need to understand it. You don't need to understand it. I certainly don't need to excuse it. I don't need to explain it. I do need to confess it, to own it, to be forgiven, and to move on from it. That's what confession is. But again, we're not great at this. We live in a point the finger and blame somebody else kind of world. You name the topic. Politics, race, justice issues, gender and sexuality issues. You name it. We're just pointing the finger one side, blaming the other. Back and forth and back and forth. But blame never solves anything. Blame never helps us. Blame doesn't move us any forward in the process. And we come by this naturally. Our spiritual lineage, I mean, we look all the way back at the beginning. That's how it started. Adam and Eve in the garden. And God says, hey, why'd you do this, Adam? <laughs> what's he do? Eve made me do it. And then what's Eve say? Well, the serpent made me do it. And the serpent said, yeah, I'll own that. I'm Satan. Of course I made them do it. I'm just trying to get them to do this all along. But Adam blamed Eve, Eve blames Adam, and we have never stopped pointing the finger blaming somebody else and shirking responsibility since then. This is the human condition. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us the freedom to keep doing that. The biblical picture of confession says that if we're going to point the finger anywhere, we've got to point the fingers right here at ourselves, at our own lives, at our own hearts. That's, that's what Nehemiah did. We look at what Nehemiah said. Look, listen to the pronouns he used. I confess. That we, including himself in there, have sinned against you, Lord. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly. Nehemiah owned it. He says, I'm part of the problem. God, it starts right here with me. Now, Nehemiah knew and was familiar with the instruction God had given to King Solomon 500 years earlier. See, Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall around the city Jerusalem, but 500 years before King Solomon, the son of King David, had built the temple right there in the center of that spot. That's where it all began. They built this temple, a temple to worship God. And in Second Chronicles, back in the Old Testament, the first part of it gives us the story of how it was built and the construction of the temple. And then Second Chronicles chapter 6, 
Solomon prays this incredible, beautiful prayer, dedicating that temple and asking for God to watch over his people. It's a great prayer. You should read it. You should pray it. But in the Second Chronicles chapter 7, we see God's point-by-point response to Solomon's prayer. And part of that is this. One night the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. At times, I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. Why might God do this? God says, I will be the one to create drought and plague and problems for you. And in the next verse, we realize why. And then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and restore their land. My eyes will be open, my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. Now look at this, if we go back real quick, that previous slide said, if they turn from their wicked ways, why would God bring problems on his people? To get their attention. You've turned to other things beside me. I want you to turn from those things and turn back to me. So I'm going to create some problems in the other things you're chasing after. And then we go on. Since for I've chosen this temple and set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I'll always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart, says the Lord. So, for us to correctly apply Scripture, we've got to keep Scripture in its context. We've got to understand it in the context, the historical context, the biblical context, the scriptural context in which it was written. And then seek to move from there. But if we just simply pull Scripture out of context, and we can do this with anything. You read any book, you read any letter, you just watch the news. They do this all the time. You pull a soundbite out of context, you can make it say whatever you want to say. problem is, when we make it say whatever we want it to say, so often we miss hearing what God actually wants to say to us. And so there's a lot for us to learn from this passage, but I've got to clear the air a little bit. Because some of this, especially verse 14, if my people will turn from their wicked ways, if they'll turn to me and pray... Some people have taken that out of context to make that say that that is God's word for America. That if we want a spiritual revival in our land, that this is the key to it. But that's not what that verse is saying. That's not the context in which it appears. And so if we take it out of context, we can make it say whatever we want. And that's dangerous because we miss what God actually wants us to hear. Listen, this is not God's word for America. When God was speaking to Solomon, Solomon did not have the United States in his brain. He just didn't. He had Israel on his mind. This was God's word for Israel. Here's why this is important. Because whenever God speaks of his chosen nation, he's speaking of Israel. And when God moves beyond that, if it's something other than Israel that's spoken of as God's chosen nation, it is never, never a geographical nation with borders and walls. No. It is always the church. The people of God, which today is us. So, Old Testament, the nation of God is Israel. New Testament, that transforms. The new nation of God is God's people all over this world. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is God's nation. Because that's his church, that's his people. So, here's why this is important. Some of us have misapplied this or been led to misapply this to say, well, this is God's word for America. That America is somehow God's special, chosen, privileged people. And if we will do this, then this is the ticket. I got news. America is not mentioned in this verse. We're not mentioned anywhere in any of Scripture. Even as much as some misguided apocalyptic prophets of today would want us to believe. 
It is for us, but it's not written about us. So there's something for us to apply, but we got to make sure. The church, I want you to hear this. The American church needs to do some confession. Because we misapply this, we buy into this idea of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is not biblical. It is not God-given. It is not scriptural. It is sin. And if we have ascribed to that, if we've bought into that, then we need, we need to own it. We need to confess it. We need to repent from it. And we need to abandon it. Here's what that means for us. Biblically, we are never, ever to marry our faith to a political party, any political party. We are never, ever to wrap our cross in anything, including the American flag. It's unbiblical, it's ungodly, and it's dangerous for us. So if we've done that, we've got to confess that. That's not okay. And there's so many out there who would tell us that's the way to do it. It's not. Now listen, this passage has plenty to say to us, plenty for us. We just got to keep it in the right context. It does have something to say to us because we should notice first where God begins with his people. It's instructive for us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their own wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll cleanse and I'll heal. Church, we got to make sure that if we're going to apply this, that as the people of God, this, this is still for us. His people call him by his name. That's us now. The new Israel. And we got to look at our wickedness. So, so this is what this means. Before we go looking at all the problems out there in the world around us, next slide for me, please. we got to look at the sin right here within us. Now, I'm, I'm going to say what Nehemiah did. This includes me, first person, personal pronoun, myself included. Before we go looking at all the ills out there, we got to look at the ills right in here at what's going on in us. So before we demand that the world turn from their wickedness, church, we got to turn from ours. Before we want to get on our high horse and talk to the world about how they have this misguided sexuality and, and problems with, with gender and all that, we got to look in the church and say, yeah, but we, we, the American church, has some serious problems with male and female addiction to pornography with adultery that's leading to a divorce rate equal to or even greater than in some places that of the world beyond the church. we got to own our own sin. Before we lecture the world on the division that's happening in our country, we better look at ourselves and remember, yeah, but Sunday morning is still the most segregated time in the week in the U.S. And that's not okay. That grieves God's heart. Before we lecture the world on all these other things, on the grace of Jesus, we better rid ourselves of our nasty attitude and our judgmentalism before we take to being the keyboard cowboys and cowgirls on the internet. Before we want to tell the world about how bad it is and complain about the rights we are losing, we better remember that Jesus said it's never about our rights. We're called to lay our lives down for others. And so we better make sure we're serving the suffering. Before we turn to social justice, I'm going to turn a little on the other side. Before we turn to social justice and the social gospel to fix the broken systems of this world, we better remember that you don't fix one system by breaking another one. That never, ever works. 
And so it's not social gospel or social justice. It's biblical justice that we must seek. Biblical justice that demands repentance from all and reconciliation for all to God. And before we want to dismiss conversations on justice, church, we got to remember that justice is not a left issue. It's not a right issue. It's not a political issue. It is a biblical issue because it's God's issue, because it's God's heart. Because justice means setting right that which has been made wrong. And so we better have conversations on justice. Because that's God's heart for his people and his world. And before, before we look at the problems out there in other sides, we've got to look at the problems right here in our own. Church, we've got to do this. Before we call it out in the world around us, we better look within, within our walls and within our own hearts. That's the biblical picture of confession. Means we ask God, God, would you help me see me as you see me? Help me see my sin for what it is and not to sugarcoat it and not to pretend and not to look beyond and not to make an excuse and not to blame, but to admit that I have sinned and I need to get right with you, God. But help me see me as you see me, not as a sinner, but as your loved child. Now, I've been asking God to do that for me. Like some news, man. Some of y'all, you, you want your preacher to be like up here on this level. Gotta be honest. Y'all, I'm human. I'm human. So is the rest of your ministry staff. So are your elders. So is every church leader and church volunteer we have here. We're human. So as I've been asking God to help me see as he sees, he's been showing me things I don't like to see. Stuff I would rather not be seeing in my own life, in my own heart. So I have some heart work to do. And I have some hard work to do. But it's necessary work for me to draw near to Jesus. But I'm also convinced I am alone in that. So I'm going to invite you to join me. Now, you might feel like you're a little beat up at the moment. I got good news for you, all right? So hang with me here. Because years later, one of Jesus' best friends, a dude named John, wrote this to the church. And here's really good news, right? He says, if we will confess our sins to him, to God, then God is faithful and just, willing to make right that which has been made wrong, to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all our wickedness. My people call my mom name. Will turn to me and turn from their wickedness. I'll bring healing. Right here. Y'all, this is really good news. Because there's not one of us who doesn't have sin. There's not one of us who doesn't need to confess. But if we confess, we got reason to celebrate. And if we'll make confession a daily thing, we got reason to celebrate daily. Because here's the deal. Here, here's what gets really good about this. See, confession brings forgiveness. And forgiveness, that gives us something to celebrate. That means we no longer face the wrath of God, the justice of God against us. That means we have the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God to cover us, the blood of Jesus to cover us. In church, we should celebrate that. And if we confess every day, if you make this a daily habit, you get to celebrate every stinking day. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Church, to me, that's an amen kind of thing, all right? That is good news for us. That if we confess, we have forgiveness and we have reason to celebrate. Whew, getting a little fired up today. That's good. So if you want an awesome life, and I hope you do, if you want the awesomeness of God to come in and saturate your life, then you confess to God. And you experience the awesomeness, forgiveness of God in your life. So last week, last week I told y'all, I, I invited you to take some time during the week to fast and pray. This week I'm going to flip that script. 
I'm going to invite you all to get some time alone with God to do some confession, to invite a trusted other person, someone who you know won't judge you but love you, but won't give you easy love, but will also hold you accountable. You invite that person. If you don't have that person, I'll be that person. We've got staff members who will be that person. We've got elders. They'd love to be that person. We've got leaders in this church and deacons. They would love to help be that person for you. No judgment, just love to help nudge you along. But you, you get some time of confession, and then you get your people together. You get your small group together and you say, y'all, it's time to have a feast because we got something to celebrate. Because all that stuff that I confess to God, that no longer defines me and that no longer defines and determines my destiny. But the grace of God, the blood of Jesus Christ, that defines me, that determines my destiny. Y'all, let's celebrate. Let's have a feast. You get your people together. You get your small group together. You get your ABF together. You call your neighbors. You call your family. You say, it is time to have a meal and we're going to have a good one. Y'all go out somewhere. Maybe you're not out, you know, at the restaurants. I don't know. Maybe you don't want to have a whole lot of people. You, you, just, you know, Uber it in and you, you call it in and you have it right there in your home. But you feast this week on the forgiveness of God. Because y'all, we got something to celebrate. Let's pray. God, we are grateful beyond grateful that you are good and that you are gracious. And God, we come to you confessing that there is sin in our lives. There is. There's things we've done. There are things we've said. There's things we've thought. Stuff that we don't want anybody else to know. God, stuff that we would hope that you would not see, but we know you are a holy God who sees everything. And so you know it, God, we just got to admit it. And God, that stuff is, is in the way between us and you. And it might be in the way between us and another. And God, we want to be done with that. We want to be rid of that. We're tired of those things. So God, we confess it in this moment right now. I pray that those online and in this room would just be mindful, calling out the specifics in their own mind, getting right with you even in this moment. But God, we praise you. We praise you for the promise, First John 1.9, that if we confess it, you forgive it. If we confess it, you heal it. If you confess it, it's gone. You don't remember it. And we're freed. So in our confession, may we be led to celebration. As the redeemed, as the freed, as the forgiven people of an almighty, awesome, loving God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.